Let's pray. Father, make us ready for you today. Make our hearts ready to receive you, to hear you, to respond to you. God, soften us where we have hardened ourselves against you, often unknowingly, unwittingly. Father, recalibrate us back to you today. For our sins dull our senses, the world and its inputs grab our attention and, and we miss you, Father. In the rush of things, in the noise, in the busyness, Lord, sometimes we don't hear your voice. Lord, I pray that today we would want to, that we would be hungry for you. And Father, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes that see, a mind that understands. Lord, those are gifts from you. And Lord, I pray that we would give you all of our attention, all of our focus, and that even in hearing, we would worship you. We would see that as an act of worship today. That we want to know you. We want to know your will. We want to draw close to you. We want to live a life that you are pleased with. We want to represent you well. We want to get this right. We want to do what your word says. We want to live triumphantly. We want to live with endurance and perseverance. We want to live with with you in mind. And so, Father, I pray you'd speak today. And, Lord, that when you do, and when we hear that we would respond how we ought to respond. Maybe that response will be deep gratitude, heartfelt appreciation of you. Maybe it will be some brokenness in us that we realize we have strayed and you're drawing us back. Father, maybe it will be a calling, a challenge to do something great for you. Maybe that one of us in this room today are already feeling the tug of your spirit to leave all these things around us that are familiar to us behind and go to the place where you're sending us. Maybe another nation. Father, in all of this, how we hear and what we do with what we hear, I pray that you would be glorified in it. We would make much of you. And Lord, as you are glorified, it is always to our benefit. That's for our good. I pray we believe that, that your glory is for our good. Doing what pleases you is what brings satisfaction to us, for we are your people called by your name, a special people with a special purpose. And Lord, whoever may be listening today, who stands right now at this moment outside of your family, outside looking in, the terms that scripture uses go beyond just outsider, alien, even enemy to you. Father, invite them in today that they would become a son or a daughter, and I pray they would come. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. I was telling Cecilia about today's message this weekend. I don't normally give sneak previews even to her. And I said, this message Sunday is going to be one of those, uh, you know, bang, 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 fast kind of messages, sort of like what you would hear if you come to Secret Church. For those of you who've been to Secret Church with David Platt, you know what I'm talking about. You need to have a couple of pens ready with good ink in them. And, and I said, it's going to be, you know, bang, bang, fast like that. She said, Why? you're not going to preach the whole book of Hebrews today, are you? And I say, yes, the whole thing. Today we come to the end of Hebrews. And there is, in the end of Hebrews, one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful benedictions that you're going to find in all the New Testament. And I started thinking about this for my sake. 
So this is one of those times where the message I'm going to give you today is more for my sake even than it is for your sake. I want to tie up any of those loose ends. I want you to leave here with a sense of the big picture of it all. What did this book do for us? What is it showing us? What is this letter telling us? And how do we respond to this? You know, when we started this journey some months ago, when we began the book of Hebrews, some of the feedback I got was, wow, that's a tough book. Well, that's going to be a hard one. Well, that's going to be a challenging one. And I found a fair number of people who never really engaged it just for that very reason. Now, some of that's because maybe wrongly we thought it doesn't apply to us because we're, we're not Hebrew, we're not Jewish, we don't have a Jewish background. Maybe for some it's because we thought some of the content is a little hard to understand because the culture is so different and our religious background is so different. But I hope if you've gone through this with us through this season, and if you haven't, that you could still engage and dig into this book and even revisit some of these messages and studies. You'll find that Hebrews paints an amazing picture of our Savior, the greatness of God in Christ. It paints a, a powerful picture of the salvation that he's offered us and why we would cling to him and not let go, how he is worth it, whatever the cost. And it has given us a challenge again and again and again. Let's believe, let's keep on believing, and let's finish. Let's run this thing, let's run this race all the way to the end. And those are some of the challenges in Hebrews. So, here's some things we've learned so far. So get your pen ready, because I'm going to go quickly. Mike, you ready back there? Here we go. In chapter 1, we found that Jesus is the definitive revelation of God, and that all of creation is subject to him. In chapter 1, we see that God has spoken to us, he's spoken to humanity in times past through a number of different ways. But if you want to know the clearest way, if you want to know the definitive way, the one by which we will most certainly know God is through Jesus Christ. In the last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, the Bible says. His Son is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Jesus. In chapter 2, we learn that Jesus is the founder of our salvation. As the founder of our salvation, it is Jesus who destroys death and the devil. Jesus, we see in chapter 2, brings salvation to many sons and daughters. He brings many sons to glory through his suffering. It was necessary that Jesus suffers in order for us to be saved. Why? Because of sin. Sin exacts a horrific price. Jesus paid that through his suffering. The Bible says in chapter 2 that Jesus, by taking on flesh and blood, there's a word for that theologically, incarnation. Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, what we sing of at Christmas time. By taking on flesh and blood, Jesus was able to do what was most necessary for us. Not simply teach us, not simply be an example for us, but to take on sin on our behalf and conquer the work of the devil, which primarily is death. Jesus died a death for our sins, and Jesus, in his resurrection, destroyed the power of death, destroyed the great work that Satan has, and so brings life to us. That's chapter 2. In chapter 3, particularly for the sake of those who grew up in a Jewish background, a Hebrew background, but also for us as we understand the greatness of Christ, we see that Jesus is greater than Moses and the law. Moses was given by God the great commandments which guide all human behavior. And a covenant along with those commandments, obey these things and live. But chapter 3 tells us as great as Moses was and great, as great an instrument as he was in God's hands, the prophet through whom the law was given for all time, Jesus is greater. The Bible says in chapter 3 that Moses was a servant in God's house. 
But Jesus is the Son. Everything in that house belongs to the Son. He's greater. In chapters 4 and 5, we see Jesus described as our tempted and tried great high priest who offers to us everlasting rest. Jesus, who calls us into the rest of the Father because of himself. He's our high priest, the one interceding for us. But he is not unlike us. He's not unidentifiable to us. We can relate to him because he's been tempted and tried like us. Verse 19 of chapter 4 says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he's without sin. That's the beauty of Christ. He knows you. He identifies with you. He's been where you've been. He's faced what you face, yet he has faced it without sin. Let us then, because of that, because of his sinlessness, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's your high priest. He's not just the one who died for you. He's the one that helps you today. Jesus is strong and kind, just like you heard. Chapter 5 says that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. To all who obey him. In chapter 6, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. He is the one that God sent, the one that all the Old Testament spoke of, the one that everything in history was leading up to, the great climax of God's redemptive plan. He's the fulfillment of God's promise. He's our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You can trust him with your life, you can connect to him and be sure and certain. Because of him, we hold fast to the hope that is set before us, the author of Hebrews says. We hold fast as we don't move off of this. There is no other anchor to which we will tie our lives off on. We can go behind the curtain in chapter 6, that place where God's presence dwells, that holiest of holies. We get access to the Father because of Jesus. That was such a monumental concept to Jewish people. God, who seems so inaccessible to them, so distant from them, so totally unlike them, which is true. He's holy and we are not. Yet, the holiness of Christ grants us access, our anchor of the soul. In chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter 7, Jesus is our eternal high priest. Not just our great high priest. He is the high priest who is forever interceding for us. He is the one that draws us near to God. This is what God is doing in your life right now if you belong to him. He's trying to draw you near. Disobedience pushes you away. Sin pushes you away. Disregard pushes you away. Preoccupation with lesser things pushes you away. God is working your life to draw you near to God because God has everything that your soul needs. Everything that you most deeply desire, God has. He is the fount of all good for us. And so he's drawing us near. I love this statement in chapter 7, one of the great verses of the book of Hebrews. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Not just able to get you to heaven, but to save you to the uttermost. Every single part of you, physically, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, spiritually, God is at work so that you may find everything that you need and long for in the Father. God is doing that through Christ. He draws us near. In chapter 8, we find that Jesus is the guarantor of a new and better covenant than the old. You ask someone today, how do you know for sure you're going to go to heaven when you die? On what basis do you think you can stand before a perfect, holy God who promises to judge all mankind, not just their actions, but the thoughts and intents of the heart? On what basis will you possibly stand before an all-knowing, 
perfectly righteous, altogether holy God, there is but one guarantee there, and it will not be your performance. It will not be your sincerity. It will not be your efforts. It will be Christ. He is the guarantor. Christ, the Bible says, has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. In chapter 8, what is that better promise? He says this, I will put my law in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Who guarantees that new way of thinking? Who guarantees that new heart? Who guarantees that you become part of God's eternal family? Christ. He's a guarantee of it. He's not simply the provider of it. He's the one that gives it and keeps it. In chapters 9 and 10, we see the lengthy explanation of Jesus as our great and final sacrifice for our sins. We see the, the great study of the atonement. What did Christ do for us in the atonement? What is that sacrifice so better So different than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Christ, the great lamb, sacrificed for our sins. Verse 9 of chapter, or in chapter 9, we see this. When Christ appeared, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. And what did his blood do? It secured an eternal salvation. That's the power of the atonement. How else do you get eternal salvation? You don't. Only Christ can do that. In chapter 10, we're told we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, paid in full through Christ. At Christmas, we recognize the coming of Christ into the world, whose purpose it is to give himself up for our sake, to be our sacrifice. In chapter 11, Jesus becomes the source and ultimate aim of our faith. He's the exemplar of faith. His faith is perfect. He is the aim of our faith, the faith without which it is impossible to please God. And we see example after example of people whose faith changed their lives, faith that created behaviors, faith that led to action. Because I believe in Christ and will not let go of him, this is how I live. That's what real faith is. If your faith is not changing your behaviors, it's not faith. It's philosophy. You have an idea about things. Faith is living and active. It's real. Show me your faith by what you do, James would say if he were here among us. And Jesus is the focal point of all faith. In chapter 12, we see that Jesus is the one who perfects our faith. He's the perfecter of faith. How does he do this? How does Jesus build our faith, make it perfect? He disciplines us. When we sin, when we fail, he calls us back. He challenges us, corrects us, disciplines us, and he keeps us. What is he keeping us for? Chapter 12 says he's keeping us for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Sometimes our faith can be shaky. Our faith can be a bit uncertain sometimes. We go through difficulty or hardship, and we struggle. We say, I'm just not sure what to believe anymore. I feel like I'm falling away. I I feel like I'm so overcome with doubt. I I don't know how to handle this. I don't know where God is in all this. Why is God letting me go through this, et cetera? Our faith can be shaky. That's why the Scripture reminds us that God is saving us and keeping us for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's nothing in all this world that can happen to you that can take you out of the hand of Jesus. His grip is sure. His kingdom is certain. Christ is because of that. He does that. So we see this in chapter 12. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. And what a powerful statement. 
Jesus endured the horrors of the cross for the joy that was set before him. He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why does that matter to us? Why should Jesus' eternal perspective matter to me and you? Because it's the perspective that God wants us to have, and it's one of the reasons for Hebrews. Jesus, who did what he did, who faced what he faced, because he knew what was his to come. That's the sort of faith God's calling you and me to have. Consider him, the very next verse says, verse 3 of chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see the correlation? Jesus knew the glories of heaven. He was there. He willingly abandoned them for a season for our sake. He became our servant. He gave up the glories of heaven for our sake. He made himself less than a servant for our sake because he knew what was his. And he wants us to know what is yours. Why do you hold on to faith? Because it's worth it. Why do you follow with endurance and perseverance? regardless of hardship or challenge, because it's worth it. So don't grow weary, don't grow faint-hearted. Consider Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, know the joy that's set before you. So, after going through those 12 chapters, we get to chapter 13. Now we live in light of forever. Because these things are true, we live in light of forever. This is the second half of chapter 13, picking up from where we left off last week. For here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. See all those implications? This is who God is in Christ. This is what he's done for us. This is the superiority of Christ to all things. This is the promise of Christ for all those who believe him that he'll save them to the uttermost. This is the worth of Christ that you would hold on him at all costs never letting him go. This is the promise of Christ to us, a kingdom that can't be shaken, so live in light of that. Man, there are so many implications of that, though, aren't there? How am I living today that shows that I'm living for eternal things? That what I want most is the pleasure of God in my life, the reward of God for my life. That I want to invest in those things that honor God with my life. Living in light of forever. Why? This is no lasting city. This world that you live in and the stuff that's in it, this is not a lasting city. You've got to know that. That's got to be one of the bedrock, convictional foundations of your life. This is not forever. This is temporary. But we do have a city that is to come, and it is forever. Would it make sense to live for that? Would it make sense to live with that in mind? Wouldn't it make sense that when I'm challenged to compromise my faithfulness to the king of kings that I don't because I'm a citizen of his city, not a citizen of this broken one? So what's the implication of that? If I'm living for the city that is to come, look at verse 15. It's got a critical linguistic clue there. Through him then. Because of that truth in verse 14, With Christ in me, then this is what I'm going to do. If I'm living in light of that everlasting city, here's what I'm going to do. Through him then, from now on, because of that, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. 
And I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. You see those practical implications? If what I care about most is the pleasure of God, if what I'm living for most is the reward of God, if the perspective that guides me most is eternity with God, this is the city that is to come, what are some things I'm going to do? And this passage lays them out, and they're pretty straightforward. In gratitude for what God has done, but also in gratitude for what he will do, I will keep worshiping him. Worship will be foundational to my life. Let me just add this little thought for a moment. When you come into worship on Sunday morning, the primary incentive to your worship, the, the fuel that catalyzes your worship, ought not primarily be how you're feeling today or the sort of week you're having. If, if you and I only worship or feel like worshiping when we feel good or we've had a good week or good things have been happening to us, we're missing the whole point of biblical worship. We worship God on the basis of what he's done for us in Christ, what we now have in Christ. We have a great salvation. It is sure and it is certain. But we also worship on the basis of what is to come. The great prayer of faith is two words. Thank you. Thank you, God, in advance for what is to come, what you're going to do in my life, what you have promised to me, what that eternal city is going to be like. So the reason I tell you that, it's not just theoretical. If I do have this mindset of no lasting city, a city that is to come, in gratitude I'm worshiping him, because of what he's going to do for me, there's never a time that I don't have enough incentive to worship. Never. There ought never be a time that a Christian does not have enough internal fuel to stir up worship. Because I'm thinking about what God has promised me. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. This is what is to come. Here's another practical implication. If I'm living for what is to come, and my focus is not on what's here and what's now, what I can acquire, what I can hold on to, uh, what I can enjoy here, that's not primary to my life, materialism and stuff and the worship of such, but him, then I have contentment. I've got contentment. I have enough. I'll be content with what I have. God has blessed me, and I'm going to keep sharing what I have in contentment because I'm not bound to it. I'm not bound to the stuff of this life. It's not my security. It's not my source of ultimate satisfaction. I don't worship it. I've got contentment. Why? Because I'm living for something bigger. I'm living for something more. And I know God's made a promise to me that defies description, exceeds imagination. That's what heaven is all about. So in contentment, I'm going to keep sharing. What's the basis of sharing? And and by the way, if you think the biblical challenges... Um, incentives, motivations, encouragements to give only apply to those who have what you might consider plenty or excess, you're missing the point. It speaks to those who feel a contentment in Christ that God will take care of me. God, God will bless me. God will meet my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's contentment that stirs up generosity, not excess, not riches, The root of generosity is contentment and gratitude. Here's a third practical challenge. In humility, we talked about this one last week, so I won't go into detail, keep honoring those that God has placed in authority in your life. This is part of God's natural order of things. 
In Hebrews chapter, I mean, in Ephesians chapter 4, for instance, the Apostle Paul gives a natural progression of spiritual growth and maturity. We'll talk about that soon in a couple of weeks. He gives this natural progression of spiritual growth and maturity and the people he puts in place in our lives to that end, for that purpose. And so if we want to keep growing, if we want to keep persevering, if we want to hang on, if we are living with eternity in mind, then part of that process is God has placed leaders in our lives, spiritual leaders, that we are to honor by submitting to them, knowing that they are watching over us. We are sub-shepherds. We are under-shepherds. And our aim is to get you to the end. That we take this whole flock, those that have been entrusted to our care, those to whom we will give an account, pastors and elders, and we want to guide you as safely and as healthily as possible to the final destination. We want to get you there. That's the point. We want to finish this together. My aim in life is not just to cross that finish line well by myself. My aim in life is to take as many of you with me as I possibly can, and let's do this together. So in humility, honor those that God has placed in authority in your life because they do have to give an account. And if you make it hard for us, you know, if you do this with groaning, then that's of no advantage to you. Because a shepherd ultimately is going to push the sheep, pull the sheep, drag the sheep, carry the sheep, whatever it may be. Let's do it in a way that's enjoyable. Okay. You can draw out any implications that you'd like. And in faith, keep praying for us. You know, that's something that you know, just jumps off the pages when you study Paul's ministry life. I, uh, it's a whole separate study and a whole separate message for sure. But it is amazing to me that the grand figure of the New Testament under Jesus Christ, the, the grand apostle of the New Testament, that had more impact for the kingdom of God than any living person save Jesus himself. I mean, assuming Jesus is far supreme, but to the men that he used, none exceed the work of the Apostle Paul. And if I were to ascribe one characteristic for the success of his ministry, it was the prayers of the people. It was the prayers of the people always he was praying, praying that he would be bold, praying that he'd be faithful, praying that he'd be holy, praying that they would live honorably in all things like this praying that they have a clear conscience. In faith, keep praying for lo- those who lead and minister. All right, so you got the big picture here. Here's what God is doing. Here's where God is taking us. And look how this ends. Look at this benediction. Most of all, know this. In chapter 13, we see a description of Jesus as the great shepherd who equips us with all that we need to do all that pleases him. This is what makes this benediction so incredible. The great shepherd, at the end of all of this, is the introduction of Jesus as the great shepherd who gives us everything that we need to do what pleases him. Listen to the text. Now. See, it's finality. Now. Now. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is what Jesus does. You know, we had a lot of discussion, and I'm sure you did in some of your small groups, your life groups, maybe some of your D groups, maybe just some of your lunchtime discussions about the warning passages in Hebrews. Taken out of context, um, taken piecemeal, we may draw wrong conclusions. And certainly a number of people have through the years about those warning passages. 
one of the great errors that we make looking at those passages is to think that the, the picture that Hebrews paints of us in the Christian life is that we're struggling on our own, and I hope you make it. Because you, know, you, could, you could fumble this ball at any time. You could blow this at any time. Uh, you could fall away irreparably at any time. And so wrongly, we might be left with the impression, I'm in this alone. God saved me, and then he says, hey, man, have at it. I'll see you on the other side if you make it there. But that's not the picture that the end of Hebrews paints. Are the warning passages real? Absolutely. I mean, consider the, some of the things we've been warned about in Hebrews so far. At least these great five warnings. In chapter 2, we're told to pay close attention to what we've heard so we don't neglect such a great salvation. He said, pay close attention to what you've heard so you don't drift away from it. Because the warning is this, how will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? What is he saying in chapter 2? The great warning is this, if you deny Christ, the means by which God offers salvation to all who believe in him, there is no alternative. There is no plan B. How will you escape? It's a rhetorical question. You will not. What is it you will not escape from? The judgment of God that is righteous and just. You cannot pay close attention so you don't neglect it. In chapter 3, we're told don't turn away from God in unbelief. Don't do it. Once faced with the truth, once presented with the good news, this is, this is who you are. This is your real condition. And it's ominous. And it's frightening. But this is what God has offered you, and it's amazing, and it's full of grace and mercy. Don't turn away from this in unbelief. He says, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Man, guard that heart. In chapter 6, we're warned to not be lazy. Don't be, don't, be, don't be lazy. He says, show earnestness. Keep working at this. Don't be lazy. Keep growing in Christ so you don't fall away. What's the best thing that you as a Christian can do? To have certainty and security in your faith? Keep growing in it. Don't start drifting. Don't ignore it. Show the same earnestness, verse 11 says, to have the full assurance of hope till the end so that you may not be sluggish. I told you this before when, we, when I preached on chapter 6. One of the most commonly asked questions, it just seems like a pervasive concern of Christians, is, you know, how can I have assurance? I don't have assurance. How can I know for sure? And almost invariably, and I don't say this as, a, as an indifferent or hard or harsh judgmental statement, but almost invariably those people who claim to be Christian who are also simultaneously struggling with their assurance are drifting away. They're not pursuing God with intensity. They're spiritually lazy at best. They're just sitting back, waiting to feel it, waiting for somebody to drop something on them that sticks or lands, something to move them or hit them. They're not running after him. They're not trying to draw near to him. They're not, they become lazy. Don't be lazy. Verse 1 says, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Go on to maturity. Maturity is the link to assurance. The more I'm maturing, the more sure I am. Not because of my own good works, but because I know Him and I see Him and understand Him. Assurance, maturity, is the link to assurance. Chapter 10, we're told to not keep on sinning. Because when you do, what happens? You throw away your confidence. The challenge in chapter 10 is pretty clear. If we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment. 
few verses down, he says, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. What's the link between those two? My confidence and my, my sinful choices? Can't you see what that does? One, the implication is there that someone who continues to sin just with impunity, not caring about the consequences, not caring about the approval of God, not, not caring at all about God's grace or God's mercy or God's pleasure in their life at all. Someone who sins without concern gives no evidence to someone who's been reborn, has a new heart. Revisit Romans chapter 6, and you'll see this discussion, this debate, this understanding. And when we sin, nothing destroys our assurance, our sense of confidence more than to know that our lives are just wracked with sin. And again, most often those people struggling with assurance have one of these two conditions. Most often they run concurrently. They become lazy spiritually, and they're caught up in sin. And they wonder why they don't feel saved. They've thrown away their confidence. And the Bible says confidence has great reward. What's the reward of confidence? Endurance. I said this before, and I'm recapping many thoughts, but I think the majority of people that have walked away from the faith, those who have deconstructed their faith and then deconverted from it, the root cause is not primarily intellectual. The root cause is typically primarily moral. It's sin that ebbs away, that hits at the root and the foundation. And then we justify that with intellectual, psychological, personal experience, emotional excuses. But the core is we do what we want to do to satisfy our own lust, and that destroys our confidence in Him, and that, that wrecks us for endurance. And chapter 12 ends with this warning, don't lose faith. Don't fall short. It's verse 3, not verse 7, as I mistakenly put in your notes. Verse 3 says, don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Can't do this. Can't keep going. That's the losing of faith. And verse 15 says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So you have these warnings. You have these warnings peppered throughout. There are more warning passages in Hebrews than any other New Testament book. So that leaves us with this question, and rightly so, if we're understanding it correctly. So how do we make it? How am I going to succeed? How am I going to succeed when sometimes I fall into sin and I don't want to miss God's grace? Or, or what about this sin? Are you saying I'm not saved now because I'm struggling with this sin or I'm struggling with this addiction or this behavior? How do I do this? How do I make sure that I'm sufficiently hungry? I'm sufficiently eager. I'm sufficiently working at this. I'm, I'm sufficiently pursuing this. How will we succeed? Consider again. This great benediction in Hebrews chapter 13. Listen to the words one more time. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom, he, to whom be glory forever and ever. How will we succeed? will succeed because we've got gospel peace. What's gospel peace? Gospel peace is different than just the circumstances of superficial peace. We all want peace. The absence of conflict, duress, stress, anxiety, right? We want that. We want that at work. We want that in our home lives. We want that with our neighbors. And we want that in general. We, we want our lives to be, unless we've got something more deeply wrong with us. We don't want to be at odds. 
We don't want to be in stressful conflict. But God promises something much better, something much deeper. We have gospel peace. The God of peace. The great theme of Hebrews is there is a way to be right with, at peace with God. And when you are at peace with God, that overlaps everything in your life. Everything in your life being given gospel peace, the good news of God in Christ Jesus is that we who have been sinners, rebels against his will, can be brought into his family in an everlasting way through a final sacrifice of Christ held by him forever for a city that can't be shaken. We've got peace. We've got peace with God. That ought to impact every part of my life. How will we succeed? Because we have gospel power. And it doesn't say it explicitly here, but implicitly in the text is this. What's the reminder of the power of Christ? He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul makes it so clear that the same mighty power that brought Jesus back from the grave is the power that works not just for us so that you and I have new life, so that one day we will be resurrected into eternal life. That great mighty power that brought Jesus back from the dead doesn't just work for us, it works in us us. This is what makes us new creations. This is what makes 2 Corinthians 5.13 reality. If anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's resurrection talk. doesn't just mean someday down the road after you die or if you're one of the fortunate that are alive when he returns and you get to meet him in the air. The Bible says that God is working resurrection power in you. How will we succeed? Because we're not who we used to be. We're new creations in Christ. This covenant that God has made with us, actually the covenant God made with Jesus for us, is to change us from the inside out. He writes it on our hearts, makes us his people. How will we succeed? Because we have a great shepherd. It's interesting to me that at the end of Hebrews... Again, a book that is so elevated, the person of Christ, right? I mean, that, the language of Hebrews, and, and I hope that after finishing this series, it'll just encourage you to go back and reread the book with new insights and new understanding. Here's a book that is so elevated, the person of Christ, that this is the exact imprint of God, the perfect picture of the nature and person of God. He is our great high priest. He sits on that throne. The, the, the nations or subject him, everything, the highest elevation of Christ, what terminology is used at the end, what title is ascribed to him at the end? High priest, mediator, king? No, it's this one, the great shepherd. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. And there are so many implications to that text. He has made us his flock. He has authority over and responsibility for us we are his sheep we are his people in the language of the gospel of john he has us we are secure in him no one can take us from him he's that kind of shepherd charles spurgeon says of this passage he says in the covenant we're the sheep the lord jesus is the shepherd you can't make a covenant with sheep they don't have the ability to covenant. But you can make a covenant with the shepherd for them. 
And so, glory be to God, though we have gone astray like lost sheep, we belong to Jesus. He made a covenant on our behalf, and he stood before us, before the living God. God, in covenant with Jesus, saves us. Jesus, in right response to God, covenants for our sake to save us. He's the great shepherd. If you belong to him, he's going to carry you through. You're going to finish. And, as this passage promises us, because we have, through Christ, listen to this, all we need to do everything necessary to please Him, all working inside of us. This is working inside of us. Those that belong to Christ have a change on the inside that affects all the outside. We're not who we used to be. We're not simply trying to do something we've never done or be somebody that we weren't. We have been made new and God is giving us all that we need. So all of these challenges, all these warnings, are they real? Absolutely. But how will we accomplish them? Because of Christ. Because of Christ, our great shepherd. And the end of this is for his glory. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. For God's glory, the great shepherd of the sheep will take all those who belong to him, every sheep that is his, and he's going to secure them all the way to the end. This is the great promise of Hebrews. I'm going to ask you if you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. Let's at the very least, if we belong to him this morning, let's give him some thanks even right now as you pray. I mean, how awesome is this? What, what a great promise. What a great promise that this is an all hinge on you. It doesn't all hinge on your ability and your wisdom and your perseverance and your endurance and your strength and your want to and your, your faith and all those things. But God is at work in us in Christ to do what pleases Him. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, He's giving us both the will, that's the want to, the ability, the how to, do what pleases Him. This is what God is doing in us. And it's all for a grand and glorious end. And it's all so that through this life until the end, God is made much of, God is glorified. And the glory of God in our lives is always for our good. To live in a way that brings Him glory is for our good. Give Him thanks for the promise. Give Him thanks for the great benediction. If you're not a Christian yet, then Hebrews, the Bible, the Holy Spirit that authored it, He's inviting you to be in right relationship with God today. How will you survive? How will you endure? If you neglect so great a salvation, you won't. You'll stand before God Almighty one day, as every person will. The Bible makes this so crystal clear. The eminent, certain judgment of God for all people. What will you do on that day? What excuse will you give? for sin? What justification will you give for heaven? What case will you make for yourself? How will you endure? You can't. You won't. But God has given us Christ, the great high priest who intercedes for us, who goes for us. What does he go with? Argument? Emotion? No. He goes with a sacrifice. He goes with a payment for our sins. 
He goes before the Father, pays the debt that sin requires, death for our sake. How do we know that the Father accepts the sacrifice of the Son for us? He validates Him by raising Him from the dead, receiving Him. Through the resurrection, we know that that debt has been paid, accepted by the Father. And now Jesus, the great shepherd of our souls, offers us that same everlasting life, that resurrection life. If you don't have that yet, you can have it today. And you start that new journey to the end, to a city that can't be shaken, to a hope sure and secure. You latch your life today to the steadfast anchor of the soul, Christ. And you can do that. Father, I pray that every believer in this room, in right response to your word and to your Holy Spirit, would, would worship. I mean, it's just the worship of, of gratitude, just pure gratitude. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, God, for what you have done. Thank you, God, for what you're doing right now, so much of which I can't even see. I don't even know about how you're doing it and protecting me and providing for me, working in me. Thank you, God, for what is to come. Salvation that will be. Thank you for your precious promises made certain in Christ for my sake. Thank you for the covenant made between Father and Son for the sake of these sheep, me, and all those like me. And Father, I pray right now that your word, so powerful, so sharp, so able to penetrate through the power of your Holy Spirit, has hit a heart today, and they're feeling your call to be saved, to give themselves to you fully, to surrender themselves to you completely, to accept the grace that you give them, and say, God, save me, a sinner. I want to know you, love you, enjoy you forever. Do that for me today. I pray as they call on you, you will save them. For your promise is this, you are able to save to the uttermost those who believe in you, those who call on you. So save them today as they call on you. Lord, be glorified in how we handle, understand, and obey your word. For your glory, for our good, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.